Lord, every morning we rise with the sun. Sometimes we have great curtains and we get to sleep in a little bit more. Some of us that light just shines through. Lord, our desire is that your light shine through us and all that we do and the way in which we are present in this world that truly people might look at us and see you, Lord Jesus, that light shining through us. As we open your word to um, the first chapter of scripture, help us to learn something new. Help us to see, Lord, ways that you have given to us a word breathed that breathes creation, that breathes life, that breathes relationship. Give us confidence in our relationship with you and with one another and with your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm just going to take you through a few things. I realize that in the fall, in October, and I know you all remember every single Bible lesson that you ever had. Um, but Jack did this phenomenal job on Genesis, the first uh, five verses that we're going to look at today. I'm like, well, great, nothing new is under the sun, and what will we do with this, and how we do this? But we're going to take a slightly different perspective. But one of the things I thought might be interesting for you all is to talk about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, specifically the prehistory of the first 11 chapters, which is Genesis. But let me tell you, what, Pentateuch means five, obviously. It is the Torah. It's their first part of the Hebrew Bible. The Torah is, um, begins with the Pentateuch. It is the most important part of their Bible because it gives the laws. It gives the relationship. It tells the story of um, how the people of God called Israel began, all of that creation, everything that's in there. But the whole Pentateuch is um, significant. It's foundational for both faith and life and study of um, the God of the universe. And so it becomes very, very important. Now, um, Moses has always been given, um, you know, attributed to writing the first five books. He was not around when God created. I know that Moses is very, very old, but he just wasn't there when God created the heavens and the earth. And um, he wasn't there for Abraham, uh, though Abraham begins a historical unit that we can um, bring some other historical facts into. But before that, it really is what we call prehistory. And uh, so inspired by the word of God, but also not unusual, especially in the Pentateuch, is that you had help. And the help is, is that you have what we call editors that gave their own spin on it. Um, the best, you know, the best descriptor is, and I can say this because I'm a woman, if Jack or Neil says this, they're in a heap of trouble. But um, you go to a football game, like if you watched the, oh, I'm sorry, most boring Super Bowl game in the whole world this past Sunday. Um, and I grew up with football, and so I love it, so I could probably tell you the scores and da-da-da. But... But that's what you would get from almost any of the gentlemen who came and watched the game. We went to a friend's house and watched the game. Now, if you were to ask me, I would begin with um, the fact that we arrived before the game began, and there was a table full of all different varieties of chips and all different varieties of dips and all different varieties of libations, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic. There was, and that's how you begin. 
So everybody has a perspective on the one story, the Super Bowl game. Am I right? And where you begin to share with it. So in the Pentateuch, you have people who contributed just um, flavors within it. Um, and, and they would be called three different groups that were the major groups that I just want to talk about briefly. One were the Yahwists. So Yahweh was a name that you would not really say out loud. It was so holy of holy. So it was given different names, Adonai, um, other, other names like that. And whenever the word Yahweh was written in Hebrew, you would cover it over. It was a holy, this is the God of the unit. This is the God that is greater and bigger than anything. And you have that sense of God's um, humongous God, the God of better than all the others, above all else, mighty, everlasting, that kind of God. The Yahwists were really into that. Then you had the people called the Eloist, and they were the ones, the Lord, that had a more, you know, wanted a more, like a personal perspective on who God was. So let me give an example of that. You do know that there are two creation stories. There are two um, uh, ark stories in the Bible. And you're all going to nod your head. <laughs> Here would you go. So uh, some of us don't know that. So if you were to look at the first few chapters, um, with creation, you have the one, uh, the Elois, where God creates man, male and female, places them in the garden, provides all that they need, and hangs out with them in the afternoon, walks in the garden with them, right? This is a personal God. This is a relational God. This is the Lord who knows us and is present with us. That's the Elois. That's the kind of relational. The third group that you have, um, and in the, in the Noah story later on, you have there's a big rain coming, you're going to build this ark, you're going to take your family, you're going to go out there, and then it gets a little more specific, as it does in the creation in Genesis. All of a sudden, it's seven days, and everything is numbered, and it's very important. And then you have the creation of humanity. You go back kind of to the personal God, not good that man should be alone, let's make somebody with him, but in those perspectives where you're beginning to number things, and accounting is important. And what God says to be done, that's very much the priestly. Priests cared about the law. They cared about the things that were done. So the best example in Noah and the ark is that first you have the, the ark. It, you know, the world's going um, to, I can't say the dogs because I love dogs. It's going, you know, to the pits. It's the worst. And so we're building this ark, and we're going to save this one group of folk um, Noah and his family, and that's the way it is. And then the priestly group comes in, and they go, two by two, this is what you need to do. You know? And so you have this numerical part of the priests that want everything in an order, decent in order, Presbyterians love this, um, but they have that perspective on it. So when you look at especially the first 11 chapters, but all through the Pentateuch, you get these different perspectives when you see things. And the best example I have are the ones I just gave you. You have two variations. The same creation, same God does it. That's our, that's our God of all gods. But there's nuances that are slightly different. And the nuances have to do with the um, 
the way in which it is explained, whether it's more of a relational or more of a numerical, that God did this on the first day, and then he did this, and then he did this, and it was good, and you see the ordering, versus when he comes to creating humanity, male and female, let's not have them be alone, let's give them some authority, let's walk in the garden with them. You see how those begin to change and how they begin to explain. They're all good, um, but um, and I'm not here to tell you that I am... Um, going to take a side on how uh, creation exactly happened other than to say that God spoke it. And that's what we'll look at at a moment. So don't ask me questions about was it literally seven days or was it a big bang theory. We're just going to say this. God is the creator of all. There you go. And I think if we start with that and we end with that, then we will not um, uh, have to... Um, go into arguments about the way it really was because we weren't there. What we do know is that in the beginning, and the word is when, so there's a sense of that, in the, and it's in the new RSV, and that's the one that we use here. There's a sense of, of, of helping us understand that in the beginning when God created. So it was almost like there's a preexistent God. There's God who has always been there. And that's important for us to remember. Um, we didn't, our God does not get created out of something else. Our God, the God, the one God is there always. So let's just look at this really quickly. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. So that's the whole big, big thing there. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So there's some ordering to this. There is um, a presence to this. But here's some of the things I'd like us to look at. Um, there is a, a relational piece in that, in that in God is speaking is that it's a spoken thing. There's a presence of God. Um, it, was, it, it has a personal touch to the way in which scripture begins. When God created, you know, when, when uh, Carol went over to the store or when, you know, what you have this sense of, of personage, of a relationship, of, of, um, of someone concrete and tangible in a way. God is much bigger than that, but it's that personal touch. And then they have um, the one word, in the beginning, when God, and it doesn't say when a God, when the God of Israel, it's when God. So there is a sense, there is one God, there's only one God um, who is present in there. He is creator and sovereign of all that is. And that sovereignty of God is going to become very, very important in the second part that we read today, that God is the creator, that God is the one who's sovereign, uh, and, that, and that he is absolutely the God. When God created the heavens and the earth. Um, by the way, the other day, and we'll get to Jesus. Well, hang on to that thought. I'll, I'll do that in a moment. <laughs> and then God, God's ways are always perfect, and all creation testifies to being good and what God created. Now, I know a couple weeks ago, that um, 
Uh, Jack, we've been talking about the difference between light and darkness, and we see darkness as that which is evil and that which is, you know, the sin and the darkness, and, and Christ comes to shine the light in the darkness. Here's the interesting thing. In the beginning, when God created, the earth was, what? Look at your Bibles there. Formless, void, and darkness. Now, if creation didn't exist before God began it, even in the darkness, there's a sense God is there. So what is it when God creates that darkness, doesn't leave it that way. But I want us to be careful that we don't displace the sin of our life or the analogy of darkness as if nothing that is dark can be good. I don't know about you, but if I really want to sleep, which is probably why I don't sleep well at home, like when I go on trips... I did survive Michigan. I'm back. I'm, you guys are worried about Jack and Beirut, and I'm just trying to survive a negative 13 wind chill factor in Michigan <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. But in hotels, they have those curtains that are like blockout curtains. It's the only way I can sleep. But you need that, right? And most of us need, like in Alaska, they have those covered, you know, if you're up there in the summer, either never go to bed or you need a room where there can be completely closed so that you can sleep. In the void, in the formless, in the darkness, when God is creating, then he brings the light. Does that make sense? He's not done. It's this formation. It's this work that's going there. So um, you see in, in the beginning when God created, and you're seeing a picture painted. And one of the greatest things that, that a gift to us is our own creativity, our own imagination. Um, and so we begin to see that we think of form, I think of formless, I think of void, I think of black holes. <laughs> and then I think of God moving into that. Um, in this language, though it's not overt, it is the language that we often hear about God that um, God is self-revealed in who he is. He is most high, almighty, everlasting. He is a, um, a, a God that is great, a God that is self-evident in the way in which he moves and works and is. And so you see this in creation. This is a big deal. There are a ton of creation stories. Every religion has creation. A lot of it comes out of great angst and struggle. A lot of it comes out of something becomes something bigger and is able to create out of that. We have a very unique story in that God speaks and it happens. Once again, that's that relation. Does God speak to you? That's that relational piece, and that's what he's doing here. It bears witness to his um, eternal existence and that God already was and always will be in that the little phrase in the beginning when most of us grew up king james in the beginning god created uh, it's that when piece that engages most at least it engages me in thinking okay this is a, this is a, a, an event this is something happening and then god speaks creation into being into being and he does it without material without force without external entities, merely God's word brings life. 
Now, for some of you, you're fast-forwarding to Jesus, that Jesus was and is the word lived out, bringing life and light to us. And so we don't want to lose that. We'll, we'll get back to that. But when God comes, he just speaks things into being. Um, I don't know if E.F. Hutton thought about the analogy of God, like when, you know, when E.F. Hutton speaks, the whole room turns. If you're old enough, you'll remember this. You know. But when God speaks, things happen. Think about scriptures like Job is having such a struggle and his goofy friends come to help and all those things go on. It's when God speaks. In fact, it's when God speaks in a low, small voice that we hear and know God. But God is speaking this out. He speaks creation into being. Before that, um, nothing existed other than God. There was nothing. So out of nothing, God creates and um, brings that in. I want to just take a moment to talk about while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. So ruach is uh, the Old Testament word for spirit. It's also for wind. If any of you have a King James, if any of you have a new King James, if any of you have maybe even an NIV with you, anybody have that? What does yours say? Spirit of God. So the important thing with that, and it, the wind is the, a, a good and appropriate word here, is to not think, oh, something external then came in. No, even the wind is God in this, and it's moving over the waters. There is a sense now, I live close to the ocean. If I climb really up high in my house, I can see the ocean. And when um, it rained last weekend over the weekend, and then, you know, kind of, swept out and came back in. The wind on the water was just crazy. Even the surfers, I mean, surfers are not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I have to tell you. <laughs> I married, except for my husband, who's brilliant. But they really, you know, they just, you, they, they tend not to, if you're a true surfer, they're not super um, ambitious with life. They are with their surfing. I mean, they're just animals that's surfing, but they will go out because they're not the sharpest knife in the drawer when you should not go out. So by the way, first storm of the year, and if several, you know, and it takes a while, all the junk, the guck from all the sewers and from everything else, that the runoff, which, you know, people put their oil down there. I know they're not supposed to. People put, you know, they just do it, and it all comes and sweeps out into the ocean. So it's a, quite toxic. So the thing is, don't go in the water for the first 48 hours after a big rain. Unless you're dumb as dirt and you're a surfer and you kind of go out there. But, I, but even on this day, my whole family surfs. I can, Jordan and I do not surf. Jordan and I are, you know, we're the clever people. But um, even Corinna and Barney, my daughter and her husband, he's a phenomenal surfer and they know better than to do that. But nobody's out that day because the wind is so crazy. The wind is so great. And that's just that wind. But there's a sense for me in this language of not a force like it has to be pushed, but a reckoning in power of who God is in the wind, the little bit of chaos that comes with that, that brings order. And, um, and so you have the wind sweeping through. It's the spirit of God moving. It's God that's creating this. It's God that's making this happen. And, um, and then when God began, when he began to 
create, again, formless void. Um, it gives you the sense that um, even in creation, it, it has a way to go. It's, it's an unveiling. It's an unwrapping. It's an understanding of what's going on in God's creation. So you have that beginning piece. And then the last part there, the creation, um, and God saw that light, I'm sorry, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Um, there's a sense of, here we are, we're in the process of doing this. You create light. Light comes from God. That's going to become very important in the next several verses. Um, in a world where... Everything is worshipped, uh, light being one of them. It's God that creates that. He separates it, and he sees that the light is good, that the light is something that's going to continue to be good, that doesn't discount that in the beginning, the void and the darkness was necessarily evil. It was part of creation. It just wasn't yet complete. Okay, so then he brings the light and the darkness. He separates the light from the day. Good job. Day is done. And um, I think about all the, I don't sing. Lord knows I wish I could. But I think about all the songs about um, love him in the morning when you see the sun arising and love him in the evening because he got you through the day. And I just think about the, God, the morning and the evening. There are verses in between that. You teach that to little children. It's a fairly easy song. But there's that sense of God is present in doing those things. Okay. Let's look at 14. Any questions on that? That might be a good way to do that. Boop. Okay. Um, 14 through 18. And God said, let there be light in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. Now, the dome, guys, is the way that they understood the earth that it had like this firmament around them. It, you, they were not thinking the universe that we know today. Um, they, they weren't thinking that way. They just thought it was kind of like this canopy over the earth. And that, you know, anything that came in, you'd slit little holes in that firmament that would bring in the rain later for Noah and stuff like that. That's kind of the way that they saw it. That's the way that they understood it. So the dome is like a, an idea of this covering. We know now... As any of us know, the more we know about God, the bigger God gets, right? But at this time, so that, that's that dome reference, and that's understood in the context of um, ancient history there, okay? And trying to understand that. Uh, let, the, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from night, and let there, them be signs for the season and for days and years. Let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now we skipped a couple of days in there, but this is, an, this is the part we're going to look at. Um, it doesn't account for the other days. This section is focused on light, which is what we're focused on right now, as defined in the function of the sun and the moon. And um, it, this is the longest section of creation, 
of the days, this part about light. And part of it is because there are um, three sets of repetitions. And um, again, in um, Hebrew, even in, in Greek, but especially in Hebrew, the repetitiveness is to emphasize something and to show something and to make sure you get it. It's also a very poetic form in the way in which Hebrew is written. And so you see this and this part of this. One is the separation from night and um, light and, and light from darkness. And so in verse 14 and 18, look at that again. Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. Verse 18, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. So that's just being repeated. What's God trying to do, he's separating those two lights. And the second part, to indicate purpose. This is the only time that he uses this, to be signs for the seasons, for days and years. So there's a planning here with those who are writing this, but you're thinking, here's God speaking into creation, what's going on, and he's giving what we now know is our calendars and our days and our months, and that's how we keep track of things and how things are going on. For some of us, our calendars own us. They just own us. And um, again, I'm married to a man who knows they exist, and he could tell you when the tides come in and they go out, but in terms of events at our home, he will always say, well, let's ask, Jan keeps a calendar for that. Let's see what's going on. But it's important, and there's that creation. So there's that one statement. The reason why I'm giving you the light of the day and the light of darkness are, are two reasons. One is so that you will have days and seasons and calendar. So you'll know years, so you'll know what's going on. So there's a way to track that. And numbers uh, you see a lot. I'm not a num numerologist, but you will see numbers in Scripture, how many people live so long and what season and what went on all those kinds of things, and here it is spoken about, written about um, in these first chapters, in, um, in this first chapter in Genesis. And then um, to give light upon the earth. So it's very specific of where God wants the light to shine, and that is, and let them, at verse 15, be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And then again, God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. So he's making a case. Just think of an of a, of a V kind of a thing. So we're bringing light, the very center, days, nights, seasons. We're bringing light. It's for the earth. Separate day and night. Um, there are those months, calendars, as I said, at the center. We're doing this so that we have um, day and night, lights that you can see in both of them, and so that there's light on the earth. So you, you just see this pattern that's going on that... Um, that the author is writing about in terms of how God created all this, once again, spoken. This is spoken. Um, and then to rule particularly by day and the moon by night. This is verse 16, and this is uh, very important. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now, one of my absolute favorite psalms, and so I'm just jumping over to this, is from Psalm 121. And I'll address a little bit about moon and sun and what that meant very, very early on in the culture of the ancient Near East, um, of which some of that influence we still see today. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord 
who made heaven and earth. Don't forget that. <laughs> That's kind of a reminder for the scripture here. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this day forward and forevermore. You see that creation story right there? So here you go. The fear of the sun in that text in Psalm 121 is that if you have been to Arizona, I'm sure that would work really well, or Utah, or any place where the sun is intense, you can get sunstroke. It can be harmful. Um, I've been white on rice all my life. I love it when we go to Hawaii. People go, "Were you? Did, did you not go with your family? Because you're still so pale. Why you know, didn't you go?" I, I'm allergic to the sun. Literally, I'm allergic to the sun, so I avoid um, baking in the sun. It can be harmful. God's not going to let that happen. The moon, people were very superstitious. A lot of people are, are fear, those nightmares, those night fears, um, the darkness. No, the moon's not going to strike you. There was a sense that the sun and the moon had great power. And Genesis 1, in these verses, God is addressing that. Creator speaks creation. The sun and the moon are things I created. They did not preexist. They do hold no deity whatsoever. That was huge for creation. That is huge for many creation stories. There's a power that people give the sun and the moon. There are people who actually are sun worshipers, not just to get brown as berries, um, which I, I did try and do one time in my life. Um, it did not go well. <laughs> um, but people who go out and they watch sunsets or they... They kind of worship the sun in a sense that there's power in the sun. It does give us vitamin D, but there's a sense of elevating something that God has created. And God was very uh, clear in creation. He speaks creation. He creates the sun and the moon. They do not exist without that. And then he gives them a role. In the same way, when he creates humanity, he gives them a role. Um, to rule by the day for them and moon by night. It's not a sense of power, of greed, or of taking over. We have to remember that in creation when God said, um, rule the earth or subdue the earth. It's not to consume the earth. It's not to abuse the earth. It's to care for the earth. It's to be responsible for the earth. It's to have a job to do. And in um, that's our humanity job. The sun was to rule. It was to be that light in the day. And the moon was to be that light in the night. So here's the cool thing. Uh, we live in city. And so we don't think, I'll, I mean, we think about the moon and when it's, if you saw the, how many of you saw the blood moon? I think that was, we, we, that was fun. I, unfortunately, I live by the coast. And so it, we kind of saw it through the clouds. But um, but it was just amazing. It was a big moon, and we really liked that. And um, it's so amazing when you are in a place like Kenya, and they don't have the night lights of the city in some of the places where we stay. 
The Milky Way is pretty incredible, guys. It really is like a band of light going across the sky. You begin to see what God has created in bringing just that little bit of light. And I love full moons because we can actually see what we're doing and where we're going. It's like there is, even in that darkness of the night, God still has his fingerprint. We still see that light. We still see what's going on. So in having that, um, the sun by day and the moon by night, their, their idea of being there is created by God, put there by God, and given a, a position, a, a, a purpose to rule. But they do not, unlike the horoscopes. I know you all love horoscopes. That is a sign of the, you know, the power of the moon and the sun. Let that one go, Someone said, what sign are you? And someone said, you know, Jan, you should just say, I'm under the sign of the cross. I went, oh, I like that one. I, I mean, honestly, I really like that. And I, I love to be stereotyped, and you would know my birthday, and you would go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's you. But um, let that go. Let that one go. I would, I would encourage. I've done it before. But that's, that's very much alive today, am I right? comes very much out of the belief of a deity that there's something in the sun and the moon that has more power than what God created it to be. We just have to be careful with that. Now, before I talk about Jesus, which we're going to in the next uh, couple minutes here, and I do have permission to say this. We, I saw Marge, that many of you know, that um, fell. She had hip replacement arm, and she began to tell me the story, and Jack had shared last week, you know, at night when you get up at night, we have little night lights. I also have a clock that shines numbers, you know, the time. Um, there's a street light out, which is why I probably need those block out curtains. So even though it's dark in my house, there are little bits of light. And um, the only time that came close to that is when we were putting on our little deck that we have. And um, it was really hard to see down the stairs, but I could still, we still had the little lights around. If you've ever had a blackout, nothing is working. So that's what happened to Marge. And she said, to be in utter pitch blackness, like Carlsbad Caverns, as Jack said, that kind of darkness. But here, even in the darkest part of the night, um, even in the darkest part of the night, God has brought that light. He has brought those stars. He's brought that moon. God always has us in mind. He never wants us to forget. So every light that we see, we might know that light of God that shines best in Christ Jesus. So let's look at, um, let's look at that last section, if you would, with me, Christ the light. Um, when we look at John 1, and we see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is just Jan flipping. It's not in your study for today, but it's part of your notes here. You think about, there's that language, right? That God doesn't use tools. He doesn't use force. He doesn't use anything. He uses voice. He speaks. Christ is there from the beginning, in the beginning. And if you um, turn with me, to, or listen, you can do either one, in... Um, John chapter 1, I'm just going to read it. Don't have it memorized as well as Psalm 121. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning 
with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So there is the, the Christ present, the Trinity present. You have the Spirit of God, the wind of God. You have John that attests to, in the beginning was the word, word spoken that brings, ooh, sorry, creation. God is being present there. And you have the Christ presence and power, which brings us that light that illuminates the darkness and sustains the light in both his humanity and divinity. Now, folks, I am not a physics major. Rick and our son Richard, Richard loved physics. He ate it up. I never got it, so I'd send him to his dad for all those fun things that they did. So here's a loose analogy, and it's almost like a parable. Don't go too far with it because then it's, you're going to start talking to me about quantum physics, and I'm not going to be able to track with you, okay? So most of you are probably within 20 years of my age, so you probably grew up with a physics that talked about light as particles of energy or waves. So it was either particles of wave. Remember on Sunday when Andre was sharing and he shared about paradox? And I looked over at Neil and I said, we're a paradox. And then Jack shared, it's two physicians. You know, there you go. The paradox, but it's like... Two things that don't really go together. That the, how, do they, how do they fit? Um, fully human, fully divine. Pick one. Because they're two completely separate. How do they work together? That is a paradox, and yet here we have with Jesus the paradox. When they were studying in physics, particles versus wave, how can it both be, and yet in light they saw both particles and wave. And they, how can that be? The two do exist. How does that happen? Now, if you get into quantum physics and all that, they, they try and make it make sense. Neither I couldn't begin to understand it, but in the very simplest form of light as particle, and as wave, and the same in light, it's just an amazing thing. We've studied it forever because it's so intriguing in the way in which it works, and the way in which it illuminates, and the way in which you see it sometimes um, explosive, like fireworks at night. Do we all go out the Fourth of July? We, you know, it's just really, really fun. But there's something magical about that bright light out there, but also that small, tiny candle that you light when the lights go out and all of a sudden you can see. It is that light that brings um, presence into the darkness. And so you have that with Christ. Um, in Christ, light seems to be both um, composed of contradictory entities in the same way that Christ, being fully human, fully divine, and yet, and yet both, and. And Christ's care and love are demonstrated by Christ in the light, giving light that he brings into the world, and that's a John 1, 4. Um, he brings, Christ's light in the world makes the impossible possible by Christ's light dwelling in us. 
And I think, again, how can, I go back to the physics, how can both particles and wave, how does that both exist? How does that work out? How can Christ be fully human and fully divine? And throughout history, people have tried to decide he's really one or the other. And again, you know, the old school fundamentalist, you know, he, he was... He was here on earth. He walked around. He was very, very physical, but he never scratched his knee. He never, you know, until he got to the cross, he never cried as a baby, you know, the famous hymns we sing. No, he did. He had to be changed. He needed a bath. He went through puberty. There's nothing more human to me than trying to go through that. It's good we only do it once. All those things, that's a humanity, uh, am I right? That's a humanity of, I could say this to the men of, well, as a woman. That's a humanity of Christ and who Christ is. He's fully human, but he's also fully divine. That's why that light can shine in the darkness. That's why we need the light in us so that we can also show that. That Christ-giving light, that spirit that comes, the spirit of Christ that lives in us and gives us that hope. So, Christ's light is reflected and lived out then in us. So here's our lesson for today. I've gone through all this. Christ creates in us God's ability to be in relationship with us. First and foremost, because of Christ, we can be in relationship with God. Because the darkness of sin, not just in the night sky, folks, the darkness of sin has separated us from God, just separated us from God. So that indwelling light of Christ in us reconciles us back into relationship with God. The ability to express the unique attributes that we have, not just as, a, as part of creation in the, in the Imago Dei, we are created in the image of God. What does that mean? And people say, oh, we're creative. We're, we're just, nobody else is, no animal is creative. Have you watched a bird make a nest? Birds are incredibly creative. Beavers, those guys are really creative. Rats are really creative because they steal food in our house and we keep trying to catch them. They are very creative, keeping away from us. Um, we do catch them, but, you know, mice, all these kinds of, you, they, they have an ability to create, but our unique creativity is in our humanity and as Christians, how we use that creativity to bring light is our call of how we continue to show God's creation. So here would be, and I'm not, um, I, it's okay. We'll miss, we'll miss, that's okay. Um, God's creativity that lives in us and through us gives us an ability to be, again, that light shining in the darkness by what we do. Now, I no longer write poetry. You know, when you're young, you, you do those kinds of things. I am not an artist. I think of the artistic people. Go around the corner, see the... the um, what do you call your art, Lynn? It's the physical, tactile, three-dimensional art that she... Mixed media, thank you. That's around the corner that Lynn Lloyd Smith created for this church. We have people who are artists in this church, people who sing in the church. It's both a gift and it's also their creative voices that use that. But are we, how do we use that for God? How do we use it to help bring people? Bach 
wrote music for every single Sunday to bring glory to God. He used his gifts and creativity in order to do that. Uniquely, um, and there's all kinds of musicians, so I, I don't want to take away from that, but uniquely in a way to bring glory to God. How do you use the gifts that you have? Now, there are two kinds of gifts that we have. Our, we have a, a bunch of different ones, but two I want to look at. One is our spiritual gifts. Once again, don't take credit for those that are a gift from the Holy Spirit. By the way, your, your natural abilities are also gifts from God. So how we use those, and those are the other gifts, your natural abilities are gifts. So I don't yet know how to sing on key. It's kind of like people who don't yet know Jesus, I have hope. I don't yet know how to sing on key. One day I may be able to. If I do, I will sing to the glory of God. Um, I do it very quietly now, but that's what you would do. But there are people who choose to do that, who people who take that gift and say, I want to use my voice to glorify God. Jack has, I love his voice. It's just fun to listen to. He's really good. That man could be a, you know, radio announcer or something. He uses his voice to bring glory to God by the proclamation of the word. People who, who are gardeners, they bring that aesthetic beauty. But if you do it, boy, this is part of God. I'm helping God in using my creative skills to bring that creation story forward. Do it uniquely as Christians. So our question is, how do you do that in your workplace and in your world to use, those crea- to use that creativity that is inbred in us? Yes, as part of just being God's creation. Yes, as part of being uh, in the image of God to uniquely think and create. How do we use that to bring that light of Christ to the world around us? by what we do and how we use our gifts and our skills and that creative element. Cook. I could go on forever. I, I mean, I have people who can smell food and tell me the ingredients. I'm like, smell good. <laughs> That's a creative side. When you make meals, like the cookies, if some of you brought cookies today, if you hadn't already, those cookies become a creative sign of what God is doing, and you're giving them for those who can't be here, for those who are suffering from loss, from those who are hurting in some way, that creative side of you begins to show that light further and further and further. So it's not so much, wow, I just don't have, you know, I don't have your gift, I don't have your gift, I don't have your gift. You have gifts. Never underestimate the way in which God wants to use your gifts in a creative way, and for you to use it creatively and the light of Christ for the world. And um, there we go. So I'll take questions. Okay, go out into the world as a light of Christ. Let that light shine so among men and women, among children, among the rich and the poor, and and those in need, as well as those who think they have it all that they might be compelled to say, I need that light that you have in my life. Tell me, how do I get that light? And may God bless you as you go. Amen.